The fact that the world will need rescue, a job eventually given to Israel, becomes evident in the Bible immediately after the universe is made. Genesis provides several stories detailing the failure of humanity, painting a portrait of our fallen condition, beginning with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humans are told not to eat from this tree, and they do it anyway. Interpreters have grappled with what exactly this represents. The explanation that makes the most sense to me is that the tree represents people choosing to do what is right in their own eyes instead of what is right in God's eyes, a commonly mentioned problem in the Bible. They knew what was right and wrong before they ate from the tree because God told them it's wrong to eat from this tree. But now that they have eaten, they will begin to define good and evil for themselves instead of following God's definition. This human tendency will prove to be the beginning of sorrows. In the second generation, doing what's right in their own eyes has introduced new problems to the human condition. Cain kills his brother out of jealousy, despite the fact that they are family. And notice that Cain, the world's first murderer, will build the world's first city. The city becomes an icon of rebellion and danger throughout the biblical story. Having been exiled from the garden, humanity will now live in the cities of Cain. The problem progresses until in Genesis 6, war and spiritual perversity take a hold of the entire human race causing God to look down in grief because the thoughts of man are only evil continually. This problem of war is obviously still with us, though the way it is practiced has become much more diabolical. But intermingling with the heavenly beings called the sons of God is the first instance we see of humanity abusing our religious instinct, twisting the spiritual drive God has placed within us to search and find him out and using it instead in pursuit of things like astrology, the worship of false gods, and so on. After Genesis 6, man's spiritual instinct is increasingly wayward, placing more distance between creatures and their creator. This culminates at the Tower of Babel. The people gather together and they say, let us build ourselves a city. And remember, cities mark the civilization of Cain, the first murderer. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Some of the worst human tendencies present themselves here. Pride and arrogance in making a name for themselves. Defiance because they refuse to spread and populate the world as God directed. And idolatry because the image of false gods were placed in the tops of towers. In the space of nine chapters, Genesis has given us a sweeping picture of man and all the trouble that he's gotten himself into. Finally, after so much human failure, God begins to enact a rescue mission. He calls Abraham and his descendants to bless the nations, saying, You will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This seems like a vague promise, but it is anything but. In context, to bless the nations is to get them out of the mess narrated in the past several chapters. And as we follow Israel's story, their calling to rescue the world becomes much more explicit. There are scores of places where the world's rescue is articulated as the purpose of Israel's existence, but we will only consider a few. Through the prophet Isaiah, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And again, the Lord tells the Israelites to keep justice and be faithful, 
for soon my salvation will come, and it is explicitly for the benefit of foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to serve him, and to love the name of the Lord. And Israel's city, Jerusalem, will not be like the cities of Cain. It will be more like the Garden of Eden, a meeting place between God and all mankind. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of heaven's armies in Jerusalem and to ask for the favor of the Lord. In those days, ten men from the nations of every language shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. If we imagine the line in the middle of the screen as a barrier between those separated from God and those who have been reunited with God, we can illustrate Israel's special role in history. Through the laws, covenants, and promises entrusted to their care, Israel will cross the boundary of separation and shine as the light of the world, guiding the way so that the nations of the world can follow them and be reunited with the God who made them in the beginning. Israel's geographic placement as a land bridge at the center of the nations was fundamental to accomplishing this mission. If God intends for Israel to be a light to the nations, it makes sense for him to strategically place them right where the three most inhabited continents of the world come together. At the center of Europe, Asia, and Africa, Israel was ideally located to carry out their mission to bring the world back to God, to be a blessing to all the nations. But Israel's problems begin early, very early. While Moses is receiving the terms of the covenant on Mount Sinai, Israel has already begun to worship false gods. The problem here is obvious. How can Israel introduce nations like Egypt to the worship of the true God if Israel is busy worshiping Egypt's gods? It's not simply that the worship of false gods is a disregard for the truth. It's that it's a disregard for Israel's neighbors, those whom Israel was supposed to bless by bringing them to the truth. Then there are other failures. Richard Friedman, Old Testament scholar at Harvard University, explains how Israel's law was different than that of other nations, namely that it was so concerned with immigrants and foreigners. Over 50 times, God's law emphasizes the well treatment of those from other countries, including the immigrant who resides with you shall be to you as the native born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And an example of how they would do this is in the way they handled their food. Whenever Israelites harvested their fields, they were required to leave the corners of the fields for the benefit of the poor and the immigrants. Since Israel exists for the sake of rescuing foreign nations, it makes sense for them to have laws of exceptional generosity toward foreign people. But unfortunately, they fail in this also. Ezekiel pronounces God's judgment on Israel because, quote, the immigrant is cheated in your midst. Jerusalem was supposed to be different, but it has proven to be a city no different than the cities of Cain. This is all highly problematic. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. But if Israel's light is snuffed out and they prove to be no closer to God than the other nations, then this is not simply a problem for the nations who need a savior. This is a problem for God himself. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans. After he surveys Israel's failure to be a light to the world, he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness cancel the faithfulness of God? You see, if I promise you I will send you a gift, and the person I choose to deliver the gift refuses to participate, 
It's not just the delivery boy who looks bad. It's my problem, too. Likewise, if God promises to rescue the world through Abraham's seed and Israel refuses to participate, this is God's problem because he has failed to keep his promise. Has his faithfulness to his promise been nullified because Israel refused to participate? God can't lie, can he? If God still intends to keep his promise, then how will he remain committed to this original plan to save the world through Abraham's seed? Paul will then introduce Jesus as the answer. Jesus is the physical descendant of Abraham. And if Jesus is faithful to Abraham's worldwide mission, then he can represent all of Israel and effectively become Israel. This is also what we find in the Gospels. Jesus is going to literally relive Israel's story so that he can be qualified to be Israel's representative. The difference is in all the places Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Let's take a moment to see how this works in Matthew's Gospel, which is really truly exceptional since it depicts Jesus as fulfilling Israel's history in chronological order. Abraham is told three times that his seed who blesses the world will be as the stars. Matthew's first chapter tells us three times that Jesus is Abraham's seed. This is why it is no surprise at his birth. We have wise men following a star. These wise men are traveling from the east to the land of Canaan, just like Abraham. And just like Abraham, they will deceive a local king when they arrive. Abraham deceived a king when he told him Sarah was his sister. The Magi will deceive King Herod when they agree to report the whereabouts of the newborn king to Herod. But the most interesting thing is they are not concerned with all the stars in the sky, as in Genesis, but with one star, a star they call his star, referring to Jesus. From the outset, Matthew is letting us know it won't be all the stars, all the descendants of Israel who rescued the world, but this one star, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, like Israel, will have an exodus out of the land of Egypt. When this happens, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's fascinating is when we find this verse in the Old Testament, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Was Matthew such a bad reader of scripture that he didn't realize Hosea was talking about Israel and not the Messiah? Not at all. Rather, he understands that if Jesus is going to be qualified to be Israel and save the world, then he must recapitulate Israel's story and fulfill Israel's passages. After Israel goes through the waters of the Red Sea, they unfortunately rebelled against God in the wilderness for 40 years, one of the first signs that they would fail to be Abraham's blessing. Jesus will fix this story when he goes through the waters of his baptism as a new exodus and then immediately is tested in the wilderness for 40 days. The fascinating thing about the temptation story is not simply that Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, but that he refutes Satan by quoting Old Testament passages that Israel was supposed to follow in their wilderness journey. And there is another way to calculate Israel's rebellion. After they receive the laws of God on Mount Sinai, they rebel a total of 10 times on the way to the land of Israel, according to Numbers 14.22. After Jesus gives the laws of God on a mountain in Matthew 5-7, through he will then perform 10 miracles, reversing Israel's 10 rebellions. 
Soon after leaving Mount Sinai, Miriam leads a rebellion against Moses and is temporarily struck with leprosy before being killed. When Jesus leaves the mountain, the first thing he does is heal a person with leprosy. The interesting thing in Miriam's event is that it was associated with dishonoring Moses. And this is the healing in which Jesus tells the person to go and honor Moses. And do you remember the problem Israel had with loving foreigners? Jesus takes care of that problem with his second miracle in which he not only works a healing for a foreigner, but for an enemy soldier, a Roman centurion. At the end of the 10 rebellions, Joshua sent spies to spy out the land of Israel for conquest. At the end of the 10 healings, Jesus sends his disciples to conquer the demons in the land of Israel through exorcism. And we should remember that Joshua is Jesus' namesake. Jesus is named after Joshua. That they both conquer and offer their people a promised land should not go unnoted. Part of being Israel means Jesus does not simply relive the story of Israel as a collective, but also its major individual figures. In Matthew 12 through 13, Israel's story moves on to the period of the monarchy as Jesus becomes David and Solomon. Let's take a look at some important snapshots of these kings' lives. To begin with, before he becomes king, David stirs controversy by taking the consecrated bread from the tabernacle that was reserved only for the priests. He makes an exception and shares the sacred bread with his men because they are starving. When Saul refuses to slaughter all the Amalekites' captured animals, he tells the prophet Samuel he kept them alive to sacrifice them to the Lord later. Samuel breaks the bad news to Saul that he has been rejected from the monarchy and David will replace him. Samuel remarks, to obey is better than sacrifice. King Saul hates David because he knows David is destined for kingship. He tries to kill David, causing David to withdraw to Philistia. And this is all quite unfortunate because it was David who used to drive away the evil spirits afflicting Saul, the most famous exorcism scene in the Old Testament. David's son, King Solomon, is renowned for his wisdom. Foreigners like the Queen of Sheba come to hear him speak. And his wisdom is codified in his parables about natural things, such as the trees of Lebanon. Now for two chapters in Matthew, we will see that Jesus covers all of his Davidic and Solomonic bases to recapitulate Israel's period of the united monarchy. To begin this section, Jesus explicitly compares himself to David in his argument with the Pharisees. Jesus permitting grain from the field to be given to his disciples on the Sabbath is like David sharing the consecrated bread with his men in the time of emergency. Jesus cites a line strikingly similar to what was said to Saul when God rejected him. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Thus, Jesus compares himself to David and the Pharisees to Saul, who persecuted David. And just as Saul did with David, the Pharisees begin to plot how to kill Jesus. And just as David did, Jesus will then withdraw from the place of danger. After this, Jesus engages in his exorcism ministry, reminding us again 
of David, who drove away evil spirits with his music. Then Jesus begins to act like Solomon. As stated earlier, Solomon was noted for his wisdom. Interesting how all three uses of the word wisdom in this gospel occur in this section. Jesus explicitly mentions Solomon, as he did David. He warns the cities of Israel that judgment from the Romans is coming because someone greater than Solomon is here, and still these cities refuse to repent. Then Jesus demonstrates his Solomonic wisdom by sharing several parables about things in nature, including the mustard tree, which again reminds us of Solomon. In chapters 14 through 17, we arrive at the period of Israel's divided monarchy, and Jesus will begin to recapitulate the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Again, we find our characters explicitly mentioned. Elijah's name occurs nine times in Matthew, six of which are in chapters 16 and 17. Jesus is explicitly compared to Elijah at the confession of Peter, and Elijah himself appears with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus heals a foreign woman's daughter in the region of Sidon. Elijah healed a foreign woman's son in that same location. The ministry of Elisha, who was Elijah's disciple, primarily focused on the gift of food. This is why chapters 14 through 16 in Matthew are so replete with references to food. The word bread occurs 15 times in this section out of a total of 21 occurrences throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. Let's very briefly look at how Jesus not only recapitulates Elisha's story of feeding the multitudes, but also improves it, making it better in certain details. Elisha tells his disciple, give to the men that they may eat. Jesus tells his disciples, you give them something to eat. Elisha's disciple protests, how can I set this before a hundred men? Jesus' disciples also protest, we have only five loaves. Elisha performs a miracle and tells his disciple to feed the men. Jesus also commands his disciples to feed the crowds with the bread he multiplies. The men ate and had some left over. In Matthew, the crowd eats and there are 12 baskets left over. Jesus is clearly following the pattern of Elisha, but Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not including the women and children, with only five loaves. Jesus not only lives Israel's story, he makes it better. And I have to squeeze this in here. Elisha has a few strange miracles. One of them is he makes an axe head float on water. So in the Elijah section of Matthew, the only gospel to record this miracle, Jesus causes Peter to walk on the water. It's one thing to make an axe head float. It's quite another to make a man walk on water. And it's interesting that the axe head was being used to build houses for God's faithful prophets. And Peter was the rock Jesus used to build his church. But what about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Paul writes to the Corinthians that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This has puzzled interpreters because there is no passage in the Old Testament anywhere that plainly predicts the Messiah being raised on the third day. You get bits of typology like Jonah and the well, and you get other passages about the Messiah conquering death, but nothing that plainly states it must be a third day resurrection. Well, what is Paul talking about then? It's noteworthy that throughout the Old Testament, it is predicted time and time again that before God's kingdom can arrive and bless the nations, Israel will have to suffer. Often Israel is discussed 
as though they will have to go into the grave and come out the other side. But one passage in particular is especially important. The prophet Hosea writes of Israel, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. There is not a prophecy that the Messiah will rise on the third day, but there is a prediction that this will happen to Israel. This is what Paul is talking about. He understands that Jesus must rise from the dead on the third day, not to fulfill a prediction about the Messiah, but to fulfill one about Israel. It's the Messiah's job to recapitulate Israel's story and fulfill Israel's prophecies, to die Israel's death in triumph through Israel's resurrection. This is the reason typology exists in the New Testament. It's not a parlor trick for proving the Bible, nor is it there just because. Jesus parallels Israel because he must make sure the Abrahamic promise is made good. To do this, he must relive and repair Israel's story. Were it not for the Abrahamic promise, there would be no reason for typology, no reason for Jesus to look like Israel, whether it's people, its kings, or its prophets. Unfortunately, Israel failed in its mission to be a light to the world, seemingly endangering God's promise to rescue the world through Abraham's seed. Jesus, as the seed of Abraham and as Israel's representative, lives out Israel's story, including its death and resurrection, to rescue the nations. This truth is fundamental to how the New Testament writers read the Old Testament, essential to how they tell the story of Jesus. Simply put, they see Jesus as Israel. Giving credit where it's due, much of this presentation was borrowed from Peter Lightheart's book, Jesus as Israel. It's $5 on Kindle, and I highly recommend it. That's all for now. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.